We pray that this morning, whoever we are, whether from this church or visitors, that we would conclude at the end of this time together that surely God knew that I was to be here. And how is it that he speaks with such clarity into my heart and my situation? And the answer to that is because he will hold us fast. Answer that prayer. Hold us fast today, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, this morning, we continue in what we're calling our motto series in the book of Acts. The motto series is where we study the same book on Sundays and in our small groups. Some of you are studying it one-on-one, and it's great when you are meeting up to talk about Acts and how it applies to your life. Please don't send me emails that say, I'm really sorry to send you an email with a question on Acts. That's just great. These emails make it to the top of my inbox. Today's passage, chapter 6, verse 8, to chapter 8, verse 4. It is a chunky one, but easy for us to get our heads around. And the section is on page 914 in the church Bibles. Stephen, another Stephen. Before we read it, I want to say this. Two phrases, one a word, one a phrase. Two phrases, one a word, one a phrase. I want us to focus our minds on as we progress on with this modest series. Here's the word. The word is certainty, and the phrase is one step forward. Luke's book, Acts, was written to give us certainty. Certainty about the inevitable, powerful, complicated, opposed progress of Jesus' mission on the earth. The unstoppable power and progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first phrase or word, certainty. I want you to be praying individually and in your small groups and when you're here on Sundays. What is it, as we study this book, that I am gaining certainty about? How is my confidence growing? Here's the second, the phrase, one step forward. Having studied the book of Acts, listening to God, praying about it, what is the one step forward that you and I are going to take in our personal evangelism? One step forward. One step forward from 400 people is a significant step forward for a church. What might that one step forward be for you and for me? It might be simply to tell people you work with, socialize with, or play sport with, or neighbors, or a group you attend that you are Christians. Bring the person or people to your mind now that you spend a significant amount of time with every day who don't yet know you are a Christian. One step forward would be to bridge that gap not worrying about how they will respond, not worrying about how you will engage in their difficult questions, not worrying about how you might lead them to Christ, but just tell them that you are a Christian. How will you find that opportunity? Pray to God and ask Him. Ask somebody to pray to God and ask them for you. If we are willing, God will give us the opportunity to say, I am a Christian. Or it might be that the one step forward is a step on an intentionality to talking to someone about the gospel or offering to read with them. Or perhaps being willing to meet with somebody in the wider community of this church where that opportunity arises. We often have people who want to read the Bible one-on-one. We just can't find people to do it with them. One step. 
One step of intentionality might simply be to spend time with someone you know who's not a Christian. Rather than watching Scotland lose again on your own, share the pain with someone who's not a Christian. That applies too to the English and almost certainly the Italians. One step forward might be to help with a group in the church that is trying to just bridge that gap into the community, whether the walking group that walked yesterday, football, toddlers, impact, internationals. One step. You might not even be gifted in that intentional evangelism, but one step allows you to serve in these groups to allow others who are to do it. One step forward. One step might be to join up with Redeemer on the church plan. It's still not too late. But not too many of you can go. If you are remaining at Chalmers, one step forward might be to think of a way and help make it happen how we can engage more effectively with this community when this building is refurbed for this community. One step forward might be to write once a year, once a year to one of our gospel partners around the world. Not a text, not an email, a letter. One step forward. One step forward might be to take a step into Christian ministry or mission. Please can I encourage you as your minister, as I encourage myself, please encourage me as I encourage you to take one step forward, to pray to God, what is that one step? And what convinces us to take that step is the certainty that we learn from this book called Acts. Now, in the last couple of chapters in Acts, or where we are at the moment in the book, Luke's purpose, Luke the author's purpose, has been to give us certainty in this one respect, that opposition and difficulties and complications will arise. Church is messy. Mission is messy. The vanguard of the gospel is not smooth. But it will not stop the gospel progressing. Jesus' mission on the earth is inevitable. Jesus' mission on the earth is unstoppable in its progress. History tells us that it is, but when you are there at the chalk face on the ground, it never feels like it will go one step on. Now, we've seen the opposition of religious authorities. We've seen the opposition of hypocrisy internally. And now we will see the church's first martyr, Stephen. Now, we're going to read Luke's account. It is long, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, through to chapter 8, verse 4. And it's never good when a preacher tells you it's really long, and you're all thinking, I know it's long, stop reminding me. What we're not going to do is read it all, and then start talking about it, because I think there's no way you're going to keep your attention if we do that. I think it's just realistic. So we're going to read it, and I'm going to preach as we read it through. And hopefully that'll help us get our heads around it. So chapter 6 of Acts, verse 8, page 914. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up 
and disputed with Stephen. A good uh, uh, kind of equivalent translation would be their hackles went up. And then this striking verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then, verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon Stephen or rushed upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing, and here's another striking verse, gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, this opening section tells us what Stephen is being accused of. He is being accused of blaspheming God by one, speaking against God's chosen person. They accuse him of blaspheming God by speaking against God's chosen person. In this case, Moses, the one God chose to rescue his people and speak to them. Stephen is being accused of blasphemy by speaking against, they say, God's chosen person, Moses. Stephen is being accused of blaspheming God by, secondly, speaking against, they say, God's chosen place, the holy temple in Jerusalem. So their accusations are based on what Stephen is saying about God's person, God's chosen person, and God's chosen place, the holy temple in Jerusalem. And it's really important that we are clear on that if we understand Stephen's long sermon which follows. Now, as we read through Stephen's sermon, as we'll do now, and uh, just to point out that his sermons are longer than mine. This is a full 50 minutes if we were to preach Stephen's sermon. A lot of it, this is why it's quite hard to read, is establishing common ground. What he's doing is he's saying to his audience, look, I understand your salvation history. Let me show you that I understand. It's a great Bible overview. But yes, Stephen is establishing common ground in his Bible overview, but what Stephen is looking to do in his sermon is make two points. And they're not sequential. He has two hammers in his hand, if you like, and he keeps hitting one nail on the head, and then another nail on the head, and then back to the first nail, and then the second nail. Two big points he makes that run all through this sermon. And these points are concerned with, one, God's chosen person throughout salvation history, and how God's people have cheated, treated that chosen ruler or rescuer. And the second point he hammers home concerns where God operates where God is to be found, where God's presence is. So let's listen to what Stephen says. Chapter 7, verse 1, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. 
the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Now let's press pause. The story of salvation, the story of Israel, begins with God's promise to Abraham. Where did that happen? In the temple? No. Where did God promise to Abraham? Where did it all begin? Where was God? In Mesopotamia. And the instruction God gave Abraham about where he should go and where God would be with him had nothing to do with a temple. Verse 5. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. God was to be with them when they were exiles in a land belonging to others with no temple who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And in verses 9 to 16, Stephen moves on in salvation history to the time of Joseph. So read with me verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, that's his brothers, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Where? In Egypt. Not in a temple in Jerusalem. God was with him in Egypt. And what about Stephen's other point about how God's people treat his chosen servant, his ruler or his rescuer? How did the other 11 children of Jacob treat Joseph, the one God had chosen to rule over and rescue them? They tried to kill him at least to seal his fate by selling him into slavery in Egypt. Reading on, verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. This is all the kind of padding to get common ground. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. 
And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and in his deeds. When God prepared to rescue his people, taking them out of Egypt, Moses was pronounced by God as beautiful in his sight. Where? Not in the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. How did the Israelites treat Moses when he stepped in to rescue and rule over them in Egypt? What did they say? Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? They rejected him. So he fled and became an exile. Verse 30, 40 more years passed. An angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to Luke, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. When God appeared to Moses on holy ground, where was that? Not in the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 34, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man Moses led them out of Egypt, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 days. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. What a gift to God's people Moses was. Verse 34, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make us gods that will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf, that's the golden calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices? 
during the 40 years in the wilderness or house of Israel, you took up the tent at Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, and images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile in Babylon. Moses, whom they rejected, was sent back by God to be their ruler and rescuer. Moses led them out of Egypt. Moses was God's voice to them. How did they treat Moses? They refused to obey him. They thrust him aside. Their hearts turned to Egypt. They made a golden calf. They reveled in it. They mocked and rejected the one God had sent to rescue him. And our fathers, verse 44, had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Now, we're getting to the end of his sermon. When Moses or Joshua or David worshipped God, where did they go? Where did they worship God? In a tent, in a wilderness, not in a temple, in Jerusalem. And so now at last we get in Stephen's sermon to the temple built by Solomon. Verse 47, it was Solomon who built a house for God, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So even when the temple is finally built, what does God himself say about it? That God does not need a temple. God does not need a building to manifest his presence. And the quotation there is from Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, which expands what Solomon himself said at the dedication of the temple. Right, that's Stephen's sermon in 12 minutes. I just need to pause, I'm tired. <laughs> Let me sum it up. You see the two points that he's making all the way through this explanation of salvation history. It is an explanation of salvation history, but the two points he has been making are this. First point, how have God's chosen people treated God's chosen person, God's chosen ruler and rescuer throughout salvation history? Again and again, they have rejected them. And the second point in Stephen's sermon, where does God work his rescuing power? Where is God's presence? Does he need a temple? Is God only to be found in a temple? God does not dwell in houses made by hands. That's how Stephen answers the charges against him. And then comes this extraordinarily strong conclusion, verses 51 to 53. 
I think if a preacher at this point is tempted to kind of read out verses 51 to 53 as a kind of strong proclamation from Stephen in the face of all this hostility, then I think it's totally wrong. I think what comes out of Stephen's mouth would be stuttering and humble and fearful constrained by the Holy Spirit that shone in his face he could not but speak the truth you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, Jesus. You have killed him, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, now listen and, and try and get your heads around the connection between the two points that Stephen makes in his sermon. Where is God present? Where is the power of God? God is where, then and now, at any time in salvation history, God is where His chosen ruler and rescuer is. And God is with His people. When His people stick with His chosen ruler and rescuer, and if God's people reject God's ruler or rescuer, then God will depart from them. If they repent and come back, God will bless them. And if God's people think that God will never depart from them, because God would not depart from a building or an institution or a denomination, then they are wrong. For God never has and never will dwell in houses made by hands, whatever label is on the door. God does not dwell in institutions made by human hands. God is where His chosen ruler and rescuer is, Jesus. And God is with His people when they stick with His chosen ruler and rescuer. And let me rephrase that a bit in line with what we have learned thus far in Acts. God's power and God's presence is with His people when they stick with His chosen ruler and rescuer. And sticking with God's chosen ruler and rescuer means sticking with how Jesus has spoken to us through His apostles' words. Jesus says through his apostles, this is the gospel. There is no other name on earth by which men and women can be saved. That's what the Holy Spirit works with in the world. That's where God is. 
the apostles' words for how we live as Christians, how we witness as Christians. That's how Jesus said it must be. That's where the Spirit of God is. It is in submission and obedience to all of that. That is how you stay with Jesus. Very often in the Christian life, we think about Jesus with me. But should we not think rightly first of us with Him? I don't find the Bible saying that Jesus is to submit to us. The Bible says we are to submit to Him. What about Stephen, the other Stephen, Murray, full of grace as he is, and the Spirit in St. Columbus Hospice right now if he's still alive? Should Jesus bend the rules even then? No. Stephen submits to his Savior. And so, in room 20 in St. Columbus Hospice, Jesus is there. And that matters. Whether in an individual's life, a church's life, a, a part of the world, God is where His chosen ruler and rescuer is Jesus. He does not need a temple, and God is with you if you are where His chosen ruler and rescuer is. Now, that's good biblical theology. God is with you if you are where His chosen ruler and rescuer is. And if you are ever put out or shut out or snubbed, or far worse, as is the case in some parts of the world, because you stick with Jesus, then listen. Jesus will be with you. Jesus will go with you wherever you are, wherever you go. If you are homeless or rootless, If you are living in submission and obedience to Jesus, Jesus Christ by His Spirit is with you. Where is God at work in the world? Yesterday I was speaking at an OMF conference. Some of you were there, I think, and as the gospel pushes out into the world. Some of you, I think, are, are here this morning from other parts of the world where you have been engaged in mission. As the gospel pushes out in the world to the nations, new expansions, new frontiers, what comes first? The structures, the buildings, the institutions, or the Spirit and Jesus where He is? What comes first? What comes first? Jesus is where the point or the arrow of the gospel is. Now, that's not to say that buildings are bad. They're great. I still love this building. I love it more when it's not black. They're useful but they're not necessary to save people. Stephen Murray does not need to be sitting here as much as he'd love to be 
He doesn't need to be sitting here to be with Jesus. Nor is he separated from his family this morning. We are here. He is there. We're still his brothers and sisters in the Lord. Redeemer meets for its uh, launch team meeting this afternoon. Redeemer is a church plant going from here in uh, the autumn, for those of you who are visiting. Three things to pray for Redeemer this afternoon. One, pray this, that the launch team of Redeemer, that God would unite them with a zeal and a passion for the gospel, that God would enable them to cleave, that's an old-fashioned word, it's a great word, stick like glue to Jesus thrilling them with the glory of the gospel. That's one. Two, pray that the people in the area they will plant who are not yet believers, that God would be softening and yielding their hearts to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and that God would even be moving people into that area who are not yet Christians, because God knows their hearts are open to the gospel and there's a living church coming. Third prayer, that God would provide a building and a hub for it all. What to pray for? All three? Yes. But if God says not yet to number three, then don't fret because that will not stop Jesus' mission going forward. It never has and it never will. There's something about being homeless when it comes to church that makes you depend, that makes you realize that Jesus sees structures and institutions and buildings as means of expanding his gospel, but not necessary for it. Back to Luke's account, the stoning of Stephen. When they heard these things, verse 54, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing. And don't think for a minute that Stephen is not, he's not sort of, this is not some kind of unrealistic piety. You know, the rocks are battering his head. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then, uh, this is significant, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They put him out of the temple, out of the city, out of Zion, the glorious city of God. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, God had something else up his sleeve there. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. They stone Stephen outside of the city of Jerusalem. Where is Jesus? Jesus is with Stephen outside of the city, outside of the temple. Jesus is where the gospel is at its frontier. Stephen is there. Jesus is with him. Stephen is where Jesus is. And Jesus is where Stephen is. 
And Saul, verse 1 of chapter 8, approved of his execution. But praise God, not forever. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, devout men, buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The gospel therefore makes its first major movement out from Jerusalem to the nations. This is the first major movement of the gospel in history after Christ died. The first major breakthrough out from Jerusalem into the nations. It is the first major fulfillment of Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Jesus did not say that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria off the back of this kind of stuff. And here before our eyes, this promise is being fulfilled. The opposition is at its strongest. Stephen is martyred. Saul is ravaging the church. But Jesus' promise is being fulfilled. His mission is advancing. It is unstoppable. And as we'll see next week in the next bit of the history of the early church, all the people who were scattered preached the gospel wherever they went. And the gospel grew and the gospel spread. And look where it is today. One thing, though, has not changed today, that the gospel advances still through complexity and friction and difficulty. It works itself out in different parts of the world in different ways, but it's just tough and hard and complex. Another thing that hasn't changed, God. God is where his rescuer is at work. God is where the gospel is proclaimed. God is where the word of God is submitted to. And as God's people, we need to stick close to Jesus. Have that thought in your mind. Not is Jesus with you, but are you with him? Are you with him? Be certain, therefore, that the gospel will go forward in spite of opposition. Be certain that God is where his chosen ruler and rescuer is Jesus. And be certain that God is with you if you are where his chosen ruler and rescuer is. If you are living in submission and obedience to Jesus individually, God is with you. If you are living in submission and obedience to Jesus as a church, God is with you. Enough certainty, maybe even in this one sermon, not my sermon, but Stephen's, to take one step forward in our personal commitment to tell people of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that each of us will heed the lessons from Stephen's life and take that one step forward to tell people of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for Redeemer this afternoon as they meet as a launch team. We pray, Lord, that you would unite them with a zeal and passion for the gospel. 
that God would enable them to cleave to Christ, thrilling them with the glory of his gospel. We pray that people in the area they will plant in who are not yet believers, that you would be softening and yielding their hearts to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would move people into that area who are not yet Christians, who have no idea perhaps of what is ahead, but you know they are open, willing to listen, and you know there is a church coming. And we pray thirdly that God would provide a building and a hub for it all. Grant to us, Lord, as a congregation, certainty. And may each of us, and thereby our church as a whole, take one step forward in our personal witness to Christ. For Jesus' sake. Amen.